It's episode 33 of Reading Aloud, the Larry Bird episode. This is a very important episode. We go sans interview. No interview. I think this is the first episode we've had where we didn't have someone to talk to. So instead, we're going to honor the title of the show and just have people read things aloud. So there's going to be three selections, as usual, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. Going to get some jokes. We're going to get introspective. And then we're going to get a little sad, which is, those are my favorite episodes of Reading Loud that have a little flavor of everything. Before we get to all that great reading, I want to say thank you so much to the UCB Theater. Uh, UCB Franklin hosted Reading Aloud last weekend, and it was such a fantastic show. The crowd, it was a packed show. The crowd was really present. And my faithful readers did such a great job. Jerry Stahl, John Cryer, Stephen Weber, um, Tim Simons, uh, Matt Jones, Allison Agosti, Mike Freeman. Who am I forgetting? It was an unbelievable show. It was so packed. It was so great. And and I have so much recorded content from that. And we're going to start the show with, uh, with a piece from that. Uh, from that show. It's so fun. It's a really funny Luke Burns piece that I found on uh, where I find most of my comedy content, the McSweeney's uh, Internet Tendency website. Uh, but before we get to that, I'll, I'll, a reminder, last week we had a book club for All the Light We Cannot See, which was stupendous. The next book club, which airs in three weeks, is for Jonathan Franzen's Purity a great lineup of book club members coming in for next month. So pick up Jonathan Franzen's Purity and dig into it. I'm about 50 pages in, and I already have a whole lot of thoughts. As most of my regular listeners know, I'm a a brazen Franzen apologist. However, this might be a different story. Or not. Maybe I'm just going to praise him for an hour. Who knows? But I have a great group of people coming in to talk about that book. So go to your lo- local bookstore and pick up Jonathan Franzen's Purity. Get into it. And then send us your thoughts at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at readingaloudpod. You can follow me as well. I'm, I'm Nate Cordry. Uh, but let's get to some fun jokes, shall we? Luke Burns is a writer and a performer. You can find his stuff at lukevburns.tumblr.com. And you can follow him on Twitter as well, Luke V. Burns. Really funny guy, I think. I'm looking at his website now. We've never met, but he has a bunch of shows at the UCB of New York at the Theater in Chelsea. Uh, I think the Theater in the East Village as well. And I feel like he might have a show that's very similar to my show. Really funny people reading really funny content, which is great. We should meet. Luke, if you're listening, let's be new friends. Uh, he, He wrote an amazing piece called The Birthday Clown Consortium Price Guide. It's really wonderful, and I almost saved it for Halloween time. Uh, but it was just too funny. So I invited my pal, Stephen Weber, frequent reading aloud contributor, to come down to the UCB and read it aloud. He did that very thing, and it was fantastic. So now let's go live to last weekend's Reading Aloud show at the UCB Franklin. This is Stephen Weber reading Luke Burns. Here it is. My next reader is, uh, is a friend of mine who I've spent quality time with. Poor Tim. <laughs> uh, he's uh, making his return to Reading Aloud. He's been on the podcast. Uh, he's read a bunch of stuff. And uh, he's coming back to the UCB, and I'm so glad he's here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Stephen Weber. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, it's a good hike. Stop trying to suck up to tall people, man. You see how destructive they are. I love the tall. Um, I'm actually going to try a gimmick here, and if it fails, and I know Nate didn't want me to, he gave me a frown. No, hold on. Hold it. Let me finish. I'm not But if it fails, we all fail together. Isn't that great? Okay. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, Steve, go there! You're all close personal friends. Um, This is called... The Birthday Clown Consortium Price Guide. 
the birthday clown consortium price guy. <laughs> Bye -bye, gimmick. Gets better. <clears throat> Bronze level. For only $50, the Birthday Clown Consortium will provide you with a full day birthday experience. Six clowns will arrive at your house just before sunrise <laughs> and wake you and your children by lightly tapping on your bedroom windows. <laughs> These clowns will noisily caper about your house as you dress and groggily prepare for the day. And if you can't get moving fast enough, you'll be treated to a pie in the face. At least a dozen clowns will be at breakfast with your family, during which time they will make conversation in their goofy, high-pitched voices and mechanically eat their food with giant fixed grins on their makeup cake faces. 30 more members of the Clown Consortium will arrive shortly thereafter, and the party will really begin. The legion of clowns swarming about your house will offer compulsory balloon animal demonstrations and magic shows every 15 minutes. Both performances involve extensive audience participation. Throughout the day, our clowns will provide mandatory face painting services to you, your children, your children's friends, and your children's friends' parents. If your face paint fades, or if you wipe the paint off, our clowns will take you aside and repaint your face. They will perform this service as often as necessary. Children who are scared of clowns will be taken from their parents and treated to special one-on-one -on -one laugh sessions with one of our clowns in a clown consortium kiosk. These sessions will last as long as it takes, days even, to ensure that the children are no longer scared of clowns. At the end of the day, each member of your family will be paired off with a clown this clown will tuck you into bed, put a finger to his lips, whisper, Shh. and slowly back into a closet or slip under your bed, where he will wait until you drift off to sleep. Silver level. For $250, we will limit our visit to two hours and only a dozen clowns will come to your house. Gold level. For $1,000, none of our clowns will come to your child's birthday party at all, keep in mind. Even if you don't pick any of the options listed above, our clowns may show up anyway to help your child celebrate his or her special day. Complimentary services. No matter which option you choose, or don't choose. You will still be entitled to all the free services that the Birthday Clown Consortium offers to the community. Clown Consortium clowns will watch over your family members whenever they leave the house. Our clowns will follow your children, making sure to dart out of sight into the bushes or behind a tree if the little ones turn around to try and identify their mysterious pursuers. Clowns will come to your property in the middle of the night and either noisily practice their pratfalls or perform strange clown rituals in the shadowy places of your backyard. <laughs> to create an ongoing atmosphere of surprise and whimsy, our clowns will hide throughout your home, wait until you let your guard down, and jump out of their hiding places to give you gifts of knives, chainsaws, and machetes. <laughs> Club. If you don't want to take advantage of these free services, simply send us a check for $8,500. This option entitles you to one whole year free visits from any members of the Clown Consortium. Just remember, once the year is over, our free services will immediately start again. Don't go to the police. They're in our power. Think of your family and send a check to the Birthday Clown Consortium 
today. Your season-long fantasy football team may be going strong, but you don't have to wait until week 16 to get paid. Put your fantasy skills to the test every single week this season at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. It's certainly my favorite. I'm obsessed with this app. I need to slow down, but I can't because it's so much fun. There are no season-long commitments. You got an injured player, no problem. Every week is a brand-new season. And DraftKings is crowning a new millionaire every week this season. So make your love of football, make it make you money. Why not? You pick your players, pile up the points, and pick up your cash. It's that easy. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code READ to play for free for a shot at $1 million in this week's Millionaire Maker event. Enter READ for free entry now only at DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. It's act two of Reading Aloud. Let's continue reading aloud. My name is Nate Cordry, and I'm going to bring you Chad Simpson's work, read by Tim Simons. Tim Simons did a great piece at last week's Reading Aloud show. He's been a member of the book club. Uh, he's a dear friend, and he's a super funny guy. I asked him to do something a little bit heavier. It's a really wonderful story I found, um, again, through McSweeney's. I'm fully obsessed. Uh, it was a collection from a couple years ago. It's a story called uh, Paloma, and it's written by Chad Simpson. Chad Simpson uh, is the winner of the John Simmons Short Fiction Award from 2012. Uh, he has a short story collection called Tell Everyone I Said Hi, and that was published by the University of Iowa Press in October of 2012. He is a teacher in Illinois at Knox College, and he received the Philip Green Wright Lombard College Prize for Distinguished che Teaching in 2010. He lives there in Illinois. He's a fantastic writer, and this story is really wonderful. So I wanted to bring it to you, all of you. So here is Tim Simons reading Paloma, by Chad Simpson. My 12-year-old daughter Paloma kept trying to kill herself. She tried three times, two years after my wife Marcella died in a car accident. The first two were kind of pathetic attempts, but still. I blamed the counselors and myself. The counselors kept telling her that her mother was in a better place, that what was important was how Paloma lived her life right now, and that she remembered her mother and was happy. I went on and on about the afterlife. Paloma was smart, though. She knew better. But then she decided to hurry to that better place where dead folks sing and walk on clouds and her mother wears large white wings and a halo as round and gold and perfect as the wedding band I still kept attached to my finger. The first time she tried to kill herself, Paloma took seven aspirin and lay in a bathtub full of lukewarm water. She left a note on the seat of my recliner. I got home from Peterson Steel at five and found the note. It said, Dad, I took seven aspirin. Love, pal. As a part of my new position at Peterson Steel, I had to run two-shot peen tumblers. I put small springs and Belleville washers into the tumblers where shot peen, tiny steel balls, pummeled the pieces until they were bright and silver and hardened the way that they were supposed to be. The machines did all the work, which was nice, but I came home covered in shot peen pellets every day because when I opened the tumbler doors, the tiny pieces of metal sprayed all over the place like they were trying to make me as hard and shiny as the steel. Reading that note, I felt like I'd just spent 15 minutes inside a tumbler and someone had jerked the door open and let me fall to the floor. I rushed into the bathroom and found Pell sitting on the toilet with a towel wrapped around her shoulders, shivering. The tub was full of clear water. Shot peen fell from my work boots into the puddles on the linoleum. I grabbed a dry towel, wrapped it around Pell's shoulders, and held her so close to my chest my jacket left a quench oil stain on her forehead. It didn't work, she said. Then she stood up and dwarfed me. At 12, Pell was almost six feet tall and weighed close to 200 pounds. That was the other thing I blamed for her suicide attempts, puberty. Puberty hit Pell early, just after she turned 10, just after her mother's car hit a pickup truck head on at the top of a hill. 
I thought of what was going on inside Pell's body as a head-on collision between a sweet, awkward child and buckets of hormones, which, like carbon monoxide, you cannot touch, taste, or smell. You could see the effects of the things on Pell's body, though. Before, she was big-boned and orange-haired like Marcella. Then her breasts and her hips and her everything grew so that same orange hair was on top of a body that I'm sure the kids called fat, though I'd say was full-figured like her mother's. By the time Pell and I stopped making monthly trips to the mall for larger bras and I'd already warned her 10 to 12 times about the dangers of toxic shock syndrome, Pell insisted on tampons, said pads were for girls, and I'd locked myself in the bathroom one night and studied the diagrams and warnings that came packaged inside each little blue box. She was five inches or so taller than me and outweighed me by 70 pounds. Less than a year after Marcella was gone, her physical double had appeared though the new Marcella was clumsy, distrustful, and afraid of the new body she'd been given. I had taught Pell about cup sizes and how a tampon applicator works, but I still wasn't comfortable being a single parent, and I didn't know what to do about a suicide attempt. So that night, I made chicken noodle soup and grilled cheese sandwiches. Pell ate a little and then said that she was going to bed. I tucked her in and walked back out to my recliner. Pell's note was still on the seat. I thought about calling Donna, the counselor Paloma saw the summer Marcella died, but I figured that would only make things worse. Pell hated Donna. All Donna ever did during their sessions was ask Pell how she felt that day on a scale from 1 to 10. Pell and I would joke about it on the way home. Early in the summer, Pell would say, 5, five and a half. As the summer went on, the numbers slowly rose, and her counselor decided we could discontinue the sessions. Like I said, she was a smart girl. The next morning, I made a big breakfast for Pell and left for work while she was still in the shower. I wrote a note to her and left it under her silverware next to the plate of eggs and toast and sausages. It said, on a scale from 1 to 10, how are you feeling today? Love, Dad. I thought it might cheer her up. I worried like hell about Pell and I was having my own problems at work, too. I had worked in Plant 2 at Peterson Steel, making hot-coiled springs for 15 years. But just before Marcella died, I'd earned an AS at the junior college, thinking maybe I'd find somewhere to work I didn't have to come home covered in oil and tiny steel balls. One of the stiff collars got word I'd put in two years of college under my belt and decided they could save some money by moving me into the quality control position they'd just invented for Plant 2. Plant 2 was four blocks from the other three plants that made up Peterson Steel, and the stiff collars were tired of having to move the springs around to get them tested. They offered me a $1 per hour pay raise to take the position, which they thought they were going to have to offer some degree double my salary to do. I balked a little, but the stiff collars didn't give me much of a choice. They brought a bunch of equipment down to Plant 2 from up the hill at Plant 1, and some 24-year-old tie-wearing degree showed me how to use it. Before... We had gotten reports and bitched about some nameless guy up the hill who decided our springs were shit. Now I had to do the test and tell the guys I'd worked with for 15 years that their Rockwell was off or their resistance was too tight that they had to run another set of testers. Plus, they told me I'd be in charge of the shot peen tumblers, which is a job usually reserved for someone on light duty because of back injury from dealing with the big jobs. After Marcella died, the guys didn't know what to say to me. I'd never been one to say much on breaks when we all sat around on empty upside-down paint buckets and stared out the open bay doors at people going by on the street living real lives. Once I became the asshole told them they had to redo everything they'd already done, they started ignoring me completely. I was tired of being the asshole. I was tired of the silence that followed me around all day at work. The morning after Pell swallowed seven aspirin, I decided I was going to lie and say that every spring I tested was perfect. I collected sample springs all that day and returned them to the guys with the go-ahead on the run. Most of the guys didn't say much, but I could tell they were surprised. They raised eyebrows and looked at me sideways. Toward the end of the day, I collected two brake pad springs Jackson was working on for an important job. The stiff collars were talking seven, eight million dollars if we got the contract. They were going to expand plant two and set up machines that ran only the brake pad springs. When I'd finished the tests, I carried them over to Jackson, who was tweaking the brake pad springs with an Allen wrench. He saw me coming his way and looked like he didn't want to hear what I was going to tell him. In truth, the ends weren't square on the two I'd tested. They'd wobbled when I stood them on end. The press was bending the steel. A machine said that they were brittle, but I didn't care. They're right in the middle on everything, I said. Hardness, length, everything. You're ready to roll. No shit, he said. He tossed the Allen wrench into a small pile of shot peen at the foot of the press. 
no shit, I said, and then fucking run them. Word spread about the run of Good Springs, and when we went to clock out at 4.30, a few of the guys asked me how Paloma was doing. They'd seen her at company picnics and probably guessed she wasn't terribly athletic or popular at school, but they asked anyway. She just started taking piano lessons, I lied. And I guess she's some kind of virtuoso. Her teacher says she's gifted. Well, fuck, Clem. You always said she was a smart one. I walked out of plant two that day with a smile on my face. And when I got home, Pell had a meatloaf in the oven and the table set. She wore a pink apron that was too small for her, the way that it had been for Marcella. She stood at the oven door, and when she saw me, she said, about five, five and a half. I shook pieces of metal off my clothes and showered. It felt good to hear the shot peen pellets fall from my ears and nose and butt crack and pling on the tub's porcelain. I used Pell's loofah to get the quench oil lodged under my fingernails. I shaved and dressed in clean clothes and had dinner with my daughter, Paloma, who wore a too small pink apron while we ate, and then asked me if I'd mind cleaning up because she had some homework to do, to which I replied, no, no, I wouldn't mind cleaning up at all. At home, all that week, I left notes asking, on a scale from one to ten, beside Pell's breakfast plate, and when I came home, she had dinner ready and raised her self-ranking half a number. At work, bars of steel were heated in 2,000-degree fires and coiled by men or machines into springs. These springs were dipped in quench oil, hardened in long ovens, and sent through a shot peener where tiny balls of steel scraped their edges clean. The springs were then pressed and picked up by me for testing. I gave the go-ahead on every set of testers I touched. Everyone was happy. When we punched out at the end of the day, I told the guys more stories about Paloma's piano abilities, how her teacher was thinking a concert was in order, and sure, I'd invite every one of them if they felt up to it. We could all hear her play. Then, seven days after her first suicide attempt, I came home from work and didn't smell anything cooking in the oven. There was another note on my recliner. It said, Dad, I'm off the scale. Love, pal. I headed straight for the bathroom and found her there on the floor. The water was running in the tub, but she hadn't used the plug, so the water just splashed into a small puddle and continued down the drain into the pipes. Pell was sprawled across the bathroom floor in her pink apron, with her arms stretched toward the toilet. She had nicked her wrist with a paring knife that lay near her hand, a half dollar of blood pooled beside it. I shook her awake, and she sat up. I must have passed out, she said. Her orange hair was matted where it had been pressed against the linoleum. I held her, pulling her face toward the same quench oil stain on my jacket that had marked her forehead a week ago. I knew I was going to have to call Donna, but first I found the bandages over the sink next to the blue box of tampons and dressed the small wound on Pell's wrist with antibiotic and tape and a square of gauze. Then I made tomato soup and grilled tuna salad sandwiches. We ate, and Pell went to bed early. Once I could tell Pell was asleep, I called Donna at her home number, which I got from an automated directory at the mental health center. I told her what happened, and she insisted on coming over right then. I showered quickly. The shot peens sounded like small bombs exploding when they left my body and landed in the tub. I left the quench oil under my nails. I had never actually met Donna before. The people at the mental health center said they liked to work with children without interference from parents. I didn't object at the time. I dressed in pajama pants and a t-shirt and waited for Donna on the front porch. She was a short, stout woman with curly brown hair and large eyeglasses. She wore a dress and low pumps that made her calves look heavy. I met her halfway down the sidewalk between the house and the street. She whispered and cupped her hand at the side of her mouth like she didn't want the neighbors to hear when she asked, Where is Paloma now? She's inside the house, I whispered too. I almost raised my hand in my mouth but caught myself. How is she doing? Donna asked. She's sleeping. She ate some dinner, though. A light wind blew, and Donna shivered. Leaves fell from the trees. Good, good, she said. She looked around at our neighbor's houses, keeping her hand near her mouth while she talked. She wanted details about Pell's suicide attempt that night. I described the cut how she was lying on the floor when I got there, the tub trying to fill with water. Then I brought up the seven aspirin and Donna's hand dropped. Her voice grew loud. She tried this last week? She raised her hand again as a shield and lowered her voice. You definitely should have called me. Donna went on about how unusual this was for someone Pell's age. 
She reeled off some statistics and recommended we admit Pell to the treatment facility in Indianapolis, an hour south. I didn't like the idea. I didn't want to admit that Pell's problem was serious, that it was something I couldn't find a way of handling, even if it was. But she made me feel irresponsible for not calling the week before. She blamed my negligence for part of what was happening to Pell. I asked Donna to come by in the morning so we could discuss it with Pell face to face. I didn't sleep that night. I sat in the dark and wished hard that Marcella were around. I wanted to ask Marcella how she dealt with puberty when she was Pell's age. I wanted to know how she'd acquired the confidence she had when I'd met her and how I could help give that same confidence to Paloma. I wanted to ask her what she knew about dealing with loss and grief. I called in sick in the morning and made waffles and bacon for Pell's breakfast. Donna rang the doorbell while Pell was still in the shower. Right away, she started talking about a court order and late-night phone calls about how Pell was going with her to Indianapolis. It's 7.30 in the morning, I said. Everything is already set. They just want to observe her at the facility for a week or so. It'll be fine. Pell stopped in the hallway on her way to the kitchen when she saw Donna. Donna walked towards her. Good morning, sweetie, she said. It looked like the counselor was going to hug her. Dad, Pell said. I told her it was all for the best, that Donna was going to help her, that she wouldn't have to stay long in Indianapolis. Pell didn't cry or throw a fit the way you'd expect a 12-year-old to. She just walked back to her room and packed a bag. While she was gone, I asked Donna if I could come along for the ride, and she said I could, but that once Pell was admitted at intake, I wouldn't be able to see her until 6 o'clock that night. I thought that if Paloma's problems were somehow caused by me, I should give her an hour alone with Donna in the car and some time at the facility without my interference, hoping that they could undo whatever damages I'd begun. I walked back to Pell's room and told her that I would visit her that night in Indianapolis, that she should be good and listen to what the counselors have to say, that I wanted her to get better. Pell packed her bag without looking at me. Donna reached up and put her arm around Pell's shoulder when they walked down the sidewalk to Donna's car, and they were gone. I called in sick to work every day, and every night I'd visited Pell in Indianapolis. Each time I went, a man dressed in khaki pants and a button-up shirt walked her to the visiting room where we were left alone. I feigned serious each night and said, On a scale from one to ten, ten being the highest, the best, and Pell laughed every time. The place was clean, and Pell didn't complain about anything except for wanting to come home. It was the same trick, she said, of making them believe she was feeling better. I wanted to know if she was actually feeling better, but I figured that if she wanted to come home, that maybe I was doing something right, that maybe I wasn't damaging her the way that I thought I was. So I didn't tell her not to lie to the counselors, but I did tell her to listen to them and that I hoped she really was feeling better. On the sixth day, Pell had been gone. About an hour before I left to visit with her, Donna called and said she was bringing my daughter home. I'd have her back in two hours. I wanted to put Pell's room in order before Donna arrived. The room wasn't dirty, but I fluffed the pillows on her bed and hung clean clothes in her closet. I dusted her dresser and straightened the wooden jewelry box that had belonged to Marcella and the tiny glass figurines Pell kept on top of it. I was putting away her clean bras and underwear when I found the opened envelope with the card inside. I didn't think I should open it, but I didn't know of anyone who would send Paloma a card. The outside of the card was navy blue and gold, covered with stars and half-moons. On the inside, the card read, Why are you still alive? I thought hard about the card. I don't think the people who made it intended for the message to be mean. I think it was supposed to be life-affirming in some way, more like, There is a reason you are still alive. What is it? Now go out and do that. But it's not the kind of card you send an overweight, suicidal 12-year-old. I went to slide the card back and found a whole stack of them behind a wall of crumpled underwear. Each envelope was addressed to Paloma, and each contained the exact same card. Not one of the cards was signed, and not one of the envelopes had a return address. I looked at each card and each identical message, trying to figure out who was sending them to my daughter and why they would do such a thing, until I heard a knock at the door. I restacked the cards, shuffled them into the drawer, and ran down the hallway to the living room. Pell rolled her eyes in Donna's direction and carried her bag to her room. Donna was all smiles. She motioned for me to join her on the front porch. I think this has been the best thing for Paloma, she said. 
She said she's feeling wonderful, that it was just a rough patch and now she's through it. I spoke loudly so maybe Pau would hear me and appreciate Donna and Donna's help the way I seem to. That's great. Really, you've been such a help. I put my hand on her back to get her going toward the car. Let me tell Paloma goodbye, she said. I'll be right here. I stayed outside. The trees were almost empty of leaves. The yard around me was full of them. I thought that maybe I could ask Donna for some answers about Pell, some real answers, not just the same self-evaluation responses that Pell had been giving her. I thought maybe I should tell her about the cards Pell had been receiving, that she would want to discuss them with her. Then I figured that if Donna had the real answers I was looking for, she wouldn't be working as a counselor for the mental health center. She would be writing books and making television appearances. She wouldn't be Donna at all. Donna came out of the house more chipper than ever. The doll's asleep, she said. Good night, Clem. I waved her out of the neighborhood. Inside, I checked on Pell. She was asleep, still in her clothes, on top of the comforter. I told her good night from the hallway and closed the door. The next morning, I made everything. Omelets and toast. I wrote the same note and placed it under her silverware. I waited for Pell to get out of the shower, told her to have a good day, and I left for work. Jackson stopped me outside the door to plant two. I thought maybe he was going to ask about my illness to see if I was feeling okay. What the fuck, Clem, he said. They sent back those brake springs every day last week, snapped in half. Been at least 20 of them dropped in your office. They were fine when I tested them, I said. They passed specs. Well, we've already got ours, he said. They've been waiting to give you yours. The stiff collars came down from plant one with the 24-year-old after lunch. They checked the calibrations on my machines with some of the springs that hadn't snapped, the good ones. The good ones hadn't broken, but they were bent almost in half. They were shaped like question marks. The 24-year-old told me that the springs were a mess and asked what I'd been doing down here. What have you been doing down here, the stiff collar said. I've been out for the last week, I said. They explained that the run they'd had painted and performance tested were from a few weeks ago when I was still working. Then I have no idea what's wrong with those springs, I said. I haven't got a clue. Then why don't, why don't you take the afternoon off, the stiff collar said. We'll look into this and get back to you in the morning. At home, I found another envelope for Paloma in the mail. It was in the same handwriting as the others without a return address. I threw it in the trash can and started an early dinner. When Paloma got home, she said, A six, six and a half. We ate. She did the dishes. The rest of the week went well. I left notes for Pell and her self-rating improved daily. She made dinner and I washed the dishes while she did her homework. At work, they discovered the power had gone out one night a few weeks earlier during the second shift. The stiff collars had run some numbers and were guessing that the springs in the K30 furnace where they'd been heat treated after the quench oil application were baked brittle while the furnace cooled after the power went out. I was off the hook, but I was still lying about all the tests I was running on the new springs we were making. The morning of the day Paloma attempted suicide for the third time, the stiff collars came to see me again. They'd received another shipment of broken springs. I don't know what to tell you, I said. Think about your job here, the stiff collar said. He went on about how they probably couldn't fire me because of the union, but they could make my job a lot less fun. I whistled for the rest of the day. I even stopped at the press for a while and helped Jackson put some brake springs into boxes. I didn't test one of them. While we were clocking out, the guys were appreciative of my lack of effort, even though they had gotten their butts chewed out by the stiff collars. They knew their jobs were safe, and the paperwork pride of that big contract was a luxury for the guys that didn't have to do the real work. I told them that Pell and I were planning the concert, that we were having tickets made, that they were going to have to pay to see my virtuoso play. Everyone laughed. At home, I took my jacket off and shook the shot peen out of it on the front porch. Inside, there was no sign of Paloma. On my chair, another note read, Dad, I'm on the roof. Love, Pell. Behind the house, the ladder was leaned up against the gutter. I climbed up and found Paloma standing beside the chimney, which was made of bricks, almost the color of her hair. We were one story, maybe 12 feet off the ground. I didn't know what to say to Pell, but I was glad I got to her before she twisted her ankle or sprained her knee. Come on, Pell, I said. Let's go inside. I'm going to jump, Dad, she said, and you can't stop me. Gooseflesh covered her arms up to her elbows. You're right, I said. I can't really stop you. 
Pal walked gingerly down the slope of the roof toward the gutter. The gutters were filled with wet leaves. I squatted and began pulling handfuls out and throwing them onto the ground. You could help me out with this, I said, throwing wet leaves onto the blanket of newly dead ones that surrounded the house. Pell did the same. She was careful not to lose her balance when she squatted at the edge of the roof, and she removed the leaves and tossed them confidently to the ground. We worked our way around all four gutters, not saying anything to one another. When the gutters were clean, Pell seemed to remember her reason for being on the roof. She walked to the side we'd begun cleaning on and stood with her toes hanging over the gutter. Nice trick, Dad, she said. She was a smart one. But I'm still going to do it. I looked around. I hadn't been on the roof of our house for a long time. We weren't high off the ground, but I could still see quite a distance. I saw Paloma's elementary school and her junior high and the high school she would go to in a few years. I saw the roofs of my neighbor's houses and the inner branches of trees where birds had abandoned their nests. Let's take the ladder down, I said. We'll probably fall off one of the rungs anyway. When she didn't say anything, I walked over to her. She told me to stop or else. I stood beside her. She shook from the knees up, told me not to come any closer. It was a short distance to the ground, really. I could see the veins in the dry red and orange leaves. I mean it, she said. I took her hand. Her fingers trembled against mine, and my fingers trembled a little against hers, too. I squeezed her hand and let out a slow breath, like when I slide open one of the shot peen tumblers just before I pull out the hard and shiny springs. And together, we jumped. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Howl FM, the best and most convenient way to listen to all the episodes of Reading Aloud. On the web at howl.fm and on the go with the Howl app. Yeah, you can stream and download all Reading Aloud episodes that have been released in the past six months and go beyond the audio with behind-the-scenes photos, commentaries, and more. But there's a way to go further. Yes, you can go deeper by upgrading to Howl Premium for only $4.99 a month. You get exclusive access to the entire Reading Aloud archive and to all the Earwolf and Wolf Pop archives. This includes all episodes older than six months, all remastered with zero ads. That's right, no ads. Only with Howl Premium, listen to hundreds of hours of the WTF podcast with Mark Marin, classic interviews in there, Robin Williams, Louis C.K., and more. Howl has also partnered with some of your favorite hosts and comedians to develop Howl Originals, brand new shows available only with Howl Premium. Check out the great new series from Lauren Lapkus and the AV Club right now. Already, there are 10 brand new hilarious Howl Originals, and we are adding new shows every week. Get access to all this exclusive content, both on your phone and on your desktop, with Howl Premium for only $4.99 per month. And with the promo code READING, you get a full month of a free trial. Just go to howl.fm and enter code READING at checkout. Remember, you can use Howl on your phone or your computer, but you can only use my promo code on howl.fm. That's the website. So go to howl.fm, that's H-O-W-L dot F-M, and use the promo code READING for one free trial of Howl Premium. Welcome to Act 3. It's the final act of this week's episode of Reading Aloud. No interview today. We're just going to honor the title of the show and have things read aloud. And again, I host the fucker, so I'm going to read whatever I goddamn well please. So I'm going to read an amazing article I read from last weekend's New York Times Magazine, the Sunday Times Magazine. It's about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, turns out he's a really thoughtful guy trapped in a really tall person's body. I guess what I just said means that tall people can't be thoughtful. <laughs> seems, seems a little hurtful. That is cruel. Yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of thoughtful tall people out there. Um, it's written by Jay Caspian uh, Kang, who's a fantastic writer who's written for uh, Wired, Morning News, Deadspin, The All, Atlantic.com, uh, a lot of stuff for Grantland, Bill Simmons' old uh, sports uh, website. He's a fantastic sports writer. 
uh, and he's he's one of my favorites. There's four or five guys and gals who are writing about sports who I read all the time. Bill Barnwell, um, Charlie Pierce, who I've mentioned on the show before, and Jay Caspian Kang is one of those guys. He's just really, really smart and thoughtful. Um, and I believe uh, he had a novel come out called The Dead Do Not Improve, which came out in 2012. I haven't read it, but I'm sure it's fantastic. Um, he's also uh, the science and technology editor for the New Yorker's uh, Elements blog. He's just a really smart guy. Anyway, he wrote this article that was in the Sunday Times Magazine on the 17th of September called What the World Got Wrong About Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, A Long, Strange Day with the, with the Least Understood Basketball Star of All Time. It's so revealing and wonderful, and I wanted to share it with you. And this is not a piece that bas- that only basketball fans are in- interested in. It's about how a smart, sensitive guy negotiates his intellect, basically. And it's written by a really good writer. So we're going to finish the show with this piece by Jay Caspian Kang from the Sunday New York Times magazine, read to you by me. Here I am. In the sleek, cold lobby of the Langham Place Hotel in Midtown Manhattan, one of those thoroughly designed spaces in which one cannot find a right angle, much less a comfortable chair, the 68-year-old, 7'2", former basketball star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was sitting on a leather bench with his arms draped around his protruding knees. It was a melancholy pose, best suited for the solitude of a beach at night or a rocky summit after a long hike. A UCLA t-shirt and a pair of jeans hung loosely off his narrow frame. Despite having had quadruple bypass surgery just a few months earlier, Abdul-Jabbar didn't look all that different than he did during his last days on the Los Angeles Lakers in the late 1980s. The only evidence, really, that he had passed retirement age was a dash of white in his goatee. Hi, I'm the reporter who's going to follow you around today, I said, sticking out my hand. Okay, he said. It was clear there would be no handshake. I sat down next to him. He made no effort to start a conversation, so neither did I. We sat in silence. Abdul-Jabbar has been in the public spotlight for 50 years, and for almost all of that time, he has drawn the ire of most reporters who have dealt with him. For a black athlete to be accepted by the sports media, especially during the early years of Abdul-Jabbar's career, he had to appear humble and deferential and continually thankful to the white world for giving him a chance to become rich and famous. Abdul-Jabbar, who, like many shy, intelligent people, channeled his innate awkwardness through a hardened mask of superiority, didn't fit the model. And while many of the black athletes who were similarly demonized during Abdul-Jabbar's time, Kurt Flood, Bill Russell, Muhammad Ali, have turned into celebrated figures, Abdul-Jabbar, despite his tremendous accomplishments, has never been widely embraced by fans. Abdul-Jabbar had agreed to meet with me on the occasion of his new book, a lively, if somewhat dutiful, reimagining of the life of Mycroft Holmes, the brother of Sherlock, that is due out this month. Mycroft Holmes, written with a co-author, Anne Waterhouse, is Abdul-Jabbar's first novel, but it will be his tenth published book. His collected works go well beyond the usual jockish hagiographies that litter the sports section of every Barnes & Noble. He has written two unusually candid autobiographies about his playing days, a comprehensive history of African-American intellectual accomplishment, a memoir about growing up in the cultural shadow of the Harlem Renaissance, and an admirably researched history of a black tank battalion that fought in World War II. But if he wanted to discuss his writing, his book, his influences, or anything at all, he gave no sign. Instead, for the next 15 minutes, he intently studied his fingernails with a mild look of disappointment on his face. We are going to have a great time today! Our mutual silent treatment was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of Demra Morales, a bustling dynamo who has been Abdul-Jabbar's manager for over a decade. Abdul-Jabbar stood up, walked wordlessly to the hotel's entrance, and peered at the sidewalk. Morales handles all of Abdul-Jabbar's public engagements with enormous, slightly delusional enthusiasm, as if he were still winning championships with the Lakers. But her hustle has paid off. 
Over the past several years, Abdul-Jabbar has emerged as a prolific columnist, writing in Time, Esquire, and the Huffington Post, while also maintaining a steady presence as a pundit on political talk shows on MSNBC and CNN. In front of a camera, Abdul-Jabbar comes across as a learned rationalist. He quotes liberally from literature, and he tries to wrestle ideas back into their historical context. He rarely, if ever, talks about basketball or his playing career. After scanning the sidewalk for gawkers, Morales ushered us into a waiting car. The radio was on, turned to talk news. Morales asked the driver to change the channel to jazz. The day's itinerary, enthusiastically set by Morales, called for a trip to the Bronx Zoo, followed by lunch at the Empire State Building. Why Abdul-Jabbar, who grew up in New York City and is famously uncomfortable in crowds, would have wanted to visit two of the most touristy clogged spots in the city was never explained. By 10 a.m., as Abdul-Jabbar moved briskly among the exhibits, the asphalt walkways of the zoo had started to fill up with schoolchildren, walking hand-in-hand in in neon t-shirts. The kids stared at the tallest man they had ever seen, and one of their chaperones turned to a colleague and said, That's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Abdul-Jabbar strode on, determined to ignore them. We saw tigers and silverback gorillas, as well as baby goats at the petting zoo. Abdul-Jabbar, looking impassively at the animals, would occasionally recite a fact about their mating habits or natural habitat. Sea lions and wolves share a common ancestor, he said dryly. He struck me as a man whose preferred mode of communication is a stack of random, verifiable statements. In the zoo's play area, Abdul-Jabbar, at Morales' urging, lay down on a giant spider web made of ropes for one of dozens of photo ops for his Facebook page. Look scared, Morales ordered while pointing her iPad's camera at Abdul-Jabbar. But I'm not scared, Abdul-Jabbar said. After some more coaxing from Morales, he opened his mouth, held his hands up by his face, and gave a half-hearted look of faux terror. As we approached the other exhibit, a man with his young son in tow looked up at Abdul-Jabbar and said, Hey, that's one of the greatest basketball players of all time. The father extended his hand toward Abdul-Jabbar and said, Wow, man, Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar dropped into a hunch and stared miserably off into the space above the man's head. And it became clear that the man and his child were not going to step aside. Abdul-Jabbar offered up a curt nod, turned, and stalked off. Morales jogged up to the child and handed him a playing card autographed by Abdul-Jabbar. Gazing after his bowed, retreating figure, the father reached down, grabbed his confused son by the shoulders, and slowly walked him toward the next exhibit. By any measure of accomplishment, whether individual statistics or overall team success, Abdul-Jabbar was an undeniable superstar. His high school team at Power Memorial near Lincoln Center won 71 straight games. At UCLA, Abdul-Jabbar, one of the best players in the history of college basketball, won three national championships and three NCAA Tournament Most Outstanding Player Awards. During a 20-year career in the NBA, he won the same number of championships as Michael Jordan, six, and bested him by one MVP award, also six. He is the NBA's all-time leading scorer. And yet, discussion of his greatness are usually tinged with annoyance, as if his dominance must be nodded at, but not dwelled upon. He has tried repeatedly to register his side of the story by writing. In high school, Abdul-Jabbar took a summer job with a Harlem-based black newspaper and covered the 1964 Harlem riots. His literary ambitions never abated. In the mid-1970s, the writer Gay Talese, while doing research for his book Thy Neighbor's Wife, ran into Abdul-Jabbar at the Playboy Mansion. Abdul-Jabbar told Talese that when he retired, he wanted to become a sports writer. It seemed like such a strange thing to admit, Talese told me. It, was, it almost felt like he wanted to be someone else, anyone else. He was caught in this huge body, but his aspiration was to be diminished in terms of ambition. He wanted to be the man in the press box. You don't expect a person with stardom and every muscle to want to become a writer. Much later, on a trip back to New York City, Abdul-Jabbar accompanied Talese to Elaine's, an Upper East Side restaurant that catered to the city's literary elite. 
He wanted to go be with the writers, Tilly said. He wanted to see Styron and Mailer. Again, I found it very unusual. It just seemed like there was a part of him that didn't want to be a man of the body. In 1983, Abdul-Jabbar published Giant Steps, the first of two engrossing autobiographies. He wrote about growing up in the 50s and 60s in the Inwood neighborhood of Upper Manhattan, the only child of a Juilliard-trained trombone player turned transit cop and a stylish woman from North Carolina who demanded that her son receive a proper education. As a boy, Abdul-Jabbar, whose birth name was Ferdinand Louis Alcinder, Jr., ran around with a diverse, middle-class crew. This innocence was shattered when his best friend, a white boy named Johnny, ultimately betrayed him in the seventh grade by calling him a, quote, jungle bunny and a, quote, nigger. I just laughed at him, Abdul-Jabbar writes. Fuck you, you milk bottle. It was the only white thing I could think of. When he started at Power Memorial... Abdul-Jabbar was already known around the city as an up-and-coming basketball star. He was written up in sports dailies and accosted on the subway. A few weeks after his 16th birthday, Richard Avedon shot his portrait. His coach, with whom he would become very close and who shielded him from reporters, was an irascible Irishman named Jack Donahue. The older man would talk to his star about the racism he saw while stationed at Fort Knox in Kentucky. On a trip to North Carolina in 1962, his first time alone in the South, Abdul-Jabbar got to see Jim Crow for himself. So I knew a little of what Mr. Donahue was talking about, he writes. He was certain that racism wouldn't die until the racists did, and so was I. What I didn't tell him was that I hoped it would be soon and that if I could help them along, I would be delighted. I wasn't quite ready to pick up the gun, but I was intimate with the impulse. His close relationship with Donahue was damaged when the coach told his protege that he was behaving like a, quote, nigger during a halftime rant. The next year, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama was bombed, killing four young black girls and partially blinding another. Abdul-Jabbar's impulse hardened into something stronger. As I watched the ineffectual moral outrage of the black Southern preachers, he writes, the cold coverage of the white media and the posturings of the John F. Kennedy White House, my whole view of the world fell into place. My faith was exploded like church rubble. My anger was shrapnel. I would gladly have killed whoever killed those girls by myself. After being recruited by nearly all the major college basketball programs in the country, Abdul-Jabbar landed at UCLA, where he studied history and English, dropped acid, and became entranced by the autobiography of Malcolm X. After his first season on the court, the NCAA Rules Committee outlawed dunking when Abdul-Jabbar netted an average of 29.5 points a game and a 67% field goal percentage. Other players dunked, but none as frequently and as ferociously as he did. The rule change, as a result, was informally known as the Alcinder Rule. Clearly, they did it to undermine my dominance in the game, Abdul-Jabbar writes in Giant Steps. Equally clearly... If I'd been white, they never would have done it. The dunk is one of basketball's great crowd-pleasers, and there was no good reason to give it up except that this and other niggers were running away with the sport. Abdul-Jabbar's UCLA team won the national championship again when he was a junior. That year, Abdul-Jabbar refused to play in the 1968 Olympics because he did not want to represent a country that did not treat him as an equal. The press pilloried him for it. In a much-publicized spot on the Today Show, Joe Garagiola, a baseball player-turned-TV personality, asked Abdul-Jabbar why he wouldn't play for his country. Yeah, I live here, Abdul-Jabbar said, but it's not really my country. Well, then there's only one solution, Garagiola said. Maybe you should move. His relationship with the press only worsened. In 1969, Abdul-Jabbar was drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks, where he would perfect his signature skyhook, a balletic feat that involves an explosive one-legged leap before flinging the ball into the hoop with one hand and win three of his eventual six MVP awards. Before games, Abdul-Jabbar read books in front of his locker to avoid engaging with reporters. On his reading list that year, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who reignited his childhood interest in Sherlock Holmes, he admired the detective's ability to synthesize huge amounts of information. 
He became notorious for berating reporters who he thought were trying to bait him into a controversial answer. Basketball, because it is played in shorts and without a helmet or a cap, invites a peculiar intimacy that puts each facial expression, each bodily tick, into heightened focus. Michael Jordan and then Kobe Bryant were celebrated for the way they set their jaws in determination. Abdul-Jabbar was judged, and is still judged, on his grim game face in the apparently joyless way he ran up and down the court. He was traded to the Lakers before the 1975-76 season and won two more MVP awards in his first two years. But the team floundered. When Magic Johnson came to the team in 1979, the press regarded him as the team's savior. They loved his radiant smile and cast him as the exuberant, warm foil to Abdul-Jabbar's supposedly arrogant, selfish loner. Despite being painfully aware of his role in the Magic Kareem binary, Abdul-Jabbar found himself drawn to the rookie's enthusiasm. He began to open up in his own peculiar way. He chose to explain himself to the public by writing a book in which he discussed in grim detail the anger he felt toward white people and how it informed the choices he'd made in his youth. He did not apologize. This is the Abdul-Jabbar paradox. He's a man who cares enough about his legacy to write two memoirs and eight other books, but he refuses to engage in the usual smoothing, sanding, and editing that is required of a public persona. He instead asks you to accept his version of his truth, even if the truth is that at 68, he sometimes has a hard time being civil to children and still refuses to shake the hand of a reporter. Abdul-Jabbar rarely stretches out to his full height. Instead, he hunches. His shoulders close on their hinges, and he tucks his chin into his neck. It's a necessary adjustment to a world that is not designed for a man as tall as he is. In the car on the way to lunch, though, he stretched back in his seat, stared out at the passing skyline, and tapped his knee to the jazz on the radio. He said that he once hoped to spend some of his retirement in a brownstone in Harlem, but the crowds and the constant attention had forced a retreat back to a suburb of Los Angeles, where he could get around without the hazard of busy sidewalks. He is divorced and has five grown children, three from his former wife, Habiba, and two by other women. He lives alone. He talked about his recent emergency quadruple bypass surgery, but insisted that the epiphanies of a life-threatening illness had eluded him. On Fifth Avenue, we were shepherded into a restaurant on the first floor of the Empire State Building. Abdul-Jabbar folded himself into a corner booth, a process that required him to stick his legs out from underneath the table at a 45-degree angle and ordered a cheeseburger. When the food arrived, Abdul-Jabbar ate like a bird, all pecks and careful dissections. But his mood had brightened. He chuckled at Morales' giddy stream of non-sequiturs, praised her business acumen, even smiled. He spoke enthusiastically about his admiration for John Le Carre and for Edgar Allan Poe's The Murder in the Rue Morgue and about his own writing, which he works on for about three hours each morning before, as he puts it, my head gets contaminated with other concerns. When he's writing fiction, he told me, he reads Elmore Leonard and Ross Thomas for dialogue. When he turns his attention to style, he reads writers as diverse as Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl, and the offbeat experimentalist Miranda July. All of Abdul-Jabbar's books have been written with a co-author. He worked with the poet Anthony Walton on the history of the Black Tank Battalion. The process of writing a book with Abdul-Jabbar, Walton told me, involved breaking down boxes of Abdul-Jabbar's research, videotapes, old photographs, contact lists, and bibliographies into a narrative. I remember when I realized that the story was going to be the story of one platoon, Walton said. That's one of the oldest stories of all time. It goes back to the Iliad. I remember how excited Kareem was when we talked about that. Just imagine what it was like to be him, Walton added. It was 50 years of him being 18 inches taller than everyone and having the brain that he'd had. Imagine being in this jazz head coming up during Black Power. This is just a dude who has a different head. In recent years, Abdul-Jabbar has turned his attention toward the internet, where he has found an unexpected role among the online commentariat. He has written on Lena Dunham, Ferguson, the body-shaming Serena Williams has endured, the Charlestown shootings, and Donald Trump. 
A bit stiff and laden with quotations from Toni Morrison and Ernest Hemingway, the columns demonstrate a change in Abdul-Jabbar's politics. He has become a pragmatist who sees the path toward racial harmony as a continuum along which one is either moving forward or moving backward. His column on the NWACP chapter president who deceived people into thinking she was a black woman struck a conciliary tone. She has been fighting the fight for several years and seemingly done a first-rate job, Abdul-Jabbar wrote. Bottom line, the black community is better off because of her efforts. I found myself wondering what Abdul-Jabbar's career might have been like if it had happened 30 years later. Social media has given athletes a direct avenue to their fans that has cut the sports reporter out of his job as translator. And it has emboldened professional athletes to make political statements they might not have made five years ago. During the Ferguson protests last fall, players for the St. Louis Rams walked out onto the field with their hands raised in protest. In December, during the Eric Garner protests in New York, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and several other NBA players wore I Can't Breathe t-shirts during pregame warm-ups. These protests were meaningful, but they pale in comparison to the risks Abdul-Jabbar took during his playing career. His refusal to play in the Olympics and his pride in the face of reporters may not be replayed in every Lakers retrospective, but they still linger in the public's memory. By throwing him straight into the muck of online opinion-making, where his name can be tweeted, shared, and liked, Abdul-Jabbar has dusted off his legacy. The odd man with the discomforting, unrelenting opinions seems finally to have found an audience. Abdul-Jabbar is a thoughtful and deliberate dresser. Nearly every piece of clothing he owns must be custom-ordered or tailored. In 1967, Life magazine photographed him being measured at a menswear shop. The tailor, whose arms are wrapped around Abdul-Jabbar's waist, is standing on a chair. When I met him again at the Langham about a month after our trip to the zoo, he was dressed for the night in a simple, impeccable-pressed white shirt and a pair of narrow-legged black slacks, stomping around the room in search of his blazer. We were about to head to the village vanguard, where he was scheduled to meet a film crew that was finishing up a biographical documentary titled, appropriately enough, Kareem, A Minority of One. Abdul-Jabbar, the basketball player, is from Los Angeles, but Luel Cinder, the kid who hopped around jazz clubs, played pickup games at the famed Rucker Park in Harlem, and hung out at parties with Will Chamberlain, is a cosmopolitan New Yorker. I asked Abdul-Jabbar if he sometimes wished he had played in the era of social media, if Twitter and Instagram might have given him a more ideal way to communicate with fans. That would have been great, he said. It would have been nice to really be able to explain myself in the way I wanted to explain myself. He began to talk about Magic Johnson, who, despite the years and their divergent paths, is still cast as Abdul-Jabbar's opposite. Where Kareem was dour, Magic was outgoing and friendly. Where Abdul-Jabbar was mechanical, Magic was creative. For better or worse, Abdul-Jabbar, basketball's scarecrow, was uprooted and stored away forever defined by how much like magic he wasn't. I understood why people liked him, Abdul-Jabbar told me. He had that great smile, so white people thought his life was okay. They thought that racism had not affected him. They were wrong, of course, but that's what they saw when they saw him. Magic made white people feel comfortable with themselves. I asked Abdul-Jabbar if he regretted the way he had treated the press, if he ever wished that he had humored them a bit more in the hope that they might help the public get to know him. Oh yes, he said. I just didn't realize back then how much it was hurting me. He turned away. But it cost me dearly. I want to thank Sam for doing God's work this week. He had to edit two really long wordy pieces. They're both brilliantly written, but very difficult to read out loud. And it falls to Sam to cut these fuckers together when Tim and I make mistakes. So, Sam, thank you for your patience and your hard work. I'm also a handsome man. Sam is what you would call a conventionally handsome gentleman. That if you saw him walking down the street, if you're a single gal or a guy, you would say, oh, that's a handsome guy. And I would say, thank you. Yeah, I mean, they I should hear you. Has anyone ever said that to you on the street? No. Okay. Well, maybe today's the day.
Let's he, do this. He's covered in interesting tattoos. There's an elephant and there's Jaws and some other ones. Do you have any on your chest? Not yet. Okay. It's working its way there. If you want to do one. Oh, I'm not a tattoo artist. No, not with that attitude. <laughs> Thank you, Sam, uh, for your patience and your hard work. Um, that was me reading about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Jay Caspian Kang wrote that for the New York Times Sunday Magazine, and I thought it was really great. It's about a creative, thoughtful writer who was trapped in the body of a basketball-playing giant. Uh, and thanks to Tim Simons and Stephen Weber for reading work by Luke Burns and Chad Simpson. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back uh, next week with an all-new episode of Reading Aloud, and there'll be an interview that time. So thanks so much for listening to episode 33. We'll be back with more next week. And pick up Jonathan Franzen's Purity and read it and tell us what you think of it. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. See you later. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Have you ever been a victim of online bullying? Can you imagine what it's like to get endless anonymous hate messages from all across the globe? Lizzie Velasquez was born with a congenital disease that makes it impossible for her to gain weight. And ever since a video of her circulated on YouTube with the caption, the ugliest woman in the world, she's been a spokesperson against online bullying. This week, she releases her wonderful documentary, A Brave Heart, about her experiences. I'm Deanna Raphael at Deanna Raphael. And I'm Emily Foster at Frida Foster. And we were lucky enough to talk to Lizzie on the most recent episode of our podcast, OMFG. Listen to a bit of what she has to say here. Every time I see a bad comment or someone says something, it doesn't really, I mean, there are times it will upset me. I mean, I'm human. But at the same time, there are times where I see it and I think, uh, I really do still have a job to do. There are still people that are needing help or needing to see that there are there is a different outlet for your anger. Listen to the rest of that interview on the latest episode of OMFG featuring Lizzie Velasquez. Then keep listening to OMFG on Wolf Pop to get down with the latest hip trends and far out slang the kids are using these days. Did I say far out? <laughs> I meant fire. Totally fire. Check out OMFG on iTunes, Howl, or your favorite podcasting app. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.